Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Today marks the 45th anniversary of Blondie's self-titled debut album in 1976, launching a career that made it all the way to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I spoke with lead singer Debbie Harry during the release of her 2019 memoir, Face It, for a book event at 6th and I in Washington, D.C. Hey, thanks for calling in. Hi, Jason. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, before we dive into the book itself, talk about the, the torts. What is this going to entail? I know isn't Chris Stein and Rob Roth and a bunch of people going to be there with you. Like, how, How's this actually set up? Well, we do a, like a, a conversation. We show uh, some video and some pictures, and we talk. Um, you know, we talk with Rob, and then the audience is included at the end. We do, you know, a Q&A. I know Chris Stein did the foreword for the book. Um, when you when you actually sat and and read what he what he wrote for you to intro the book, there, <laughs> tell me tell me your reaction. Did you tear up a little bit? Did you get a little nostalgic, or you know, tell me about you know what that meant to you for him to write that? So um, I I of course I love what he wrote and. Uh, but we're, you know, we're still working together after all these years, so I sort of expected it to be positive, and uh, he's just a, I don't know, he's a great guy. I'm so, I'm so lucky that, you know, we met all those years ago, and that we're still friends, and still working together. Um, I don't know, what more can I say? He's one of, one of my biggest influences and best friends. Absolutely. Um, and I want to go through the book a little bit with that. You know, it's, it's that delicate line where you don't want to spoil it for listeners. You want them to read it themselves, but we can try to maybe hit, you know, give give them a little teasers a little bit. I like that you sort of, you know, come right out and you hit us right in the face with love child right away. Uh, tell, tell me why was it important to, you know, in, intro audiences and, and, and sh- you, you kind of talk about, you know, you, you don't shy away. You, you talk about your, your parents and putting you up for adoption and, and uh, why was it important to sort of set the scene of, you know, of, of how you got on this planet? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm going to make light of this because, um, you know, I didn't really want to waste, uh, waste any time with anybody or uh, paper for that matter. You know, recycling is a big issue with me. So, um, I don't know. I just, uh, I don't know. I, I didn't want to you know, sort of flower it up too much, but I'm kind of a direct person and um, I just sort of got right to it. I I think um, in today's world and the way that we communicate, you know, it's always, it's pretty direct, you know, and when you, when you, when you meet somebody or you talk with somebody who's sort of trying to dodge 
the issues or to talk in circles around things, uh, you know, it seems pretty obvious. I think that we're all so attuned to, you know, really sort of hearing what people are saying, um, you know, that I just, uh, I felt like I should just do, you know, tell the, tell the story and get right to it, you know? Absolutely. And uh, remind our listeners um, how, you know, the, the whole formation of Blondie came together, how you, how you sort of recount that in the book, how you were, you know, backing up the folk group, what was it, the Wind in the Willows, and, and tell, remind us how you actually, you know, met Chris. Oh, uh, at a performance uh, of the Stilettos, uh, which was uh, one of the bands that I was in. I've, I've been in a, a few other bands, but I, you know, I, I didn't go through all of that because they were very short-lived. But I felt that uh, <clears throat> the, the formative, the most formative bands that I, I was in, and the ones that really sort of taught me the most, uh, were the Wind of the Willows and the Stilettos. And... Uh, that's that's when I met Chris at this stiletto little gig in a little bar. Awesome. Um, and I know uh, yeah, when you're writing the book, how much are you trying to paint that early, you know, New York punk scene? It's so it's just such a vivid time period you have to set. Not only are you describing who you're meeting and everything, but how much did you try to like paint a visual picture of? of that punk scene and how important was that, that it just bled off the pages? Well, everybody's heard so much about it and so much about CBGBs that, um, you know, there's sort of really no way that I could uh, leave that out. And, it, and as I said, you know, it, it was um, very, it was like, actually I've said it a few times in other interviews that, you know, hanging out at CBGBs and putting the band together in some odd way was like parallel to going to college because, you know, we had to, um, you know, we had to really deal with everything right in front of an audience and uh, learn the business and uh, figure out what, what kind of music we were going to do. And, um, you know, I guess for, for every band, it's a little bit different. And um, we sort of, I don't know, we interviewed and played with a lot of different musicians for a couple of years. And then finally, uh, it solidified and we started working with um, the, the, you know, the guys that were on the first album. So, um, you know, as I said, you know, CBGB's was, uh, was probably the, you know, ultimate experience for us in terms of, you know, working in a club and, playing in front of a live audience, um, couldn't get much better than that. But the other thing that people always ask me is, you know, is that, you know, sort of special uh, to New York? And, it, and in this case, it, it certainly was. But um, I know there are club scenes all over, all over the country, all over the world. And it's certainly, uh, what was it, the 930 in Washington? Mm-hmm. So you know, I have, I've I've played there. I I think it's it's a great um, it's sort of a I don't know it's just such a special thing to you know perform in front of a, a small intimate live audience. Um, there's nothing like it. It's it's the best thing. You know, you really get to you get to know who you are as well as you know what the audience wants. 
Can you, you know, share any memories that you have when you get that breakthrough hit, Heart of Glass? Can you remember? I know you co-wrote the song you and with Chris, I believe, right? Uh, do you remember where you were when that came to you? Where did you jot it down on a napkin or, or in, you know what I mean? Like, how did that song actually come to you guys? Oh, it happened. Uh, uh, it sort of. We had the music for a long time, and we were sort of fiddling about with the uh, lyric and. <clears throat> Uh, I don't know if there was any one place, actually, because I sort of remember when we were living on the Bowery um, that, you know, we at, we ended up, you know, because we had the first the first half of the line, one thing I love, it was gas, sort of turned out, it was a pain in the ass, but we <laughs> sort of wanted to change that, and uh, but we could never really find the, the right thing, and then... Um, we, you know, got Heart of Glass, and Heart of Glass you know, sort of locked it down. And uh, But at the time, we didn't realize that it was also uh, a movie title. Exactly. And then, speaking of movies, wasn't, um, when you guys, followed, when you did Call Me on, um, well, I guess, was it a couple albums later, um, wasn't that all, that was also supposed to be for American Gigolo soundtrack. I believe they, uh, they were trying to get, like, Stevie Nicks or someone to do a song first. I think that fell through, and then then they asked you guys, um, how did that one come to you? You know, at the time, I didn't know that they had asked Stevie Nicks. Uh, besides, I think, I, I mean, I respect her very highly. Um, my, I guess it came through management. And then we uh, we met with Paul Schrader, and he showed us the, uh, the footage. Uh, I guess it was, uh, by then, it was pretty much the completed film. And um, we just went away and wrote the song. The song practically wrote itself. <laughs> That's awesome. Tell me about um, you know when you when you're naming the band Blondie, and also it's not only a name; it's it's sort of your per, whole persona too, right? And the the phrase you have in the book is your you quote. I was playing up the idea of a very feminine while fronting a male rock band in a highly macho game. I was saying things that female singers really didn't say. I wasn't submissive or begging him to come back. I was kicking his ass, kicking him out, and kicking my own ass, too. My Blondie character was an inflatable doll with a dark, provocative, aggressive side. I was playing it up, yet I was very serious. That's the perfect uh, embodiment of the name. But explain sort of, you know, you were you were playing that idea. I mean, basically, Blondie is like, you know, a derogative cat call you would get, but you're owning it. And you were kicking his ass, as you say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I never thought being called Blondie was uh, derogative. I always thought it was kind of, you know, street noise, you know. Gotcha. Well, t- tell me how you sort of harness that, and you and you and you play it up, and it's sort of an edge of your whole persona with that. Well, I think that uh, I don't know. Um, it sort of was a different era then, you know, and I, I think that. Um, there wasn't any internet or anything like that, and and I think communications and language was was a little bit uh, more formal, perhaps. Um, you know, I guess with the you know perspective of time, you know, you look back over things, and um, I I don't think it was any different than the way we we talk with each other now, or you know the way people have attitudes today. But I think at that time. It, it was a little more formal, perhaps, or a little bit more, uh, maybe less, just less communication. So um, I, maybe I didn't write it right in the book, but um, 
I guess that, you know, like when I when I hear you read this back to me right now, I sort of like think, what the hell are you talking about? But um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it's sort of, uh, you know, it is like that. You know, I mean, there was no internet. It's a different world today. So I guess somehow I'm trying to express that. Awesome. Tell me if you have if we have time. Tell me about um, you know your meeting Andy Warhol. I think it was 1980 that that photo shoot at the factory um, and how that sort of helped immortalize you. And you know, in, in a new way. You know, a lot of us we knew and loved your music, but once you do this photo shoot with Andy, you sort of become that you know that pop art icon in in a way too. Memories of of Andy. Well, I, you know, I was very fortunate to be living in New York at the right time in the right place and. Um, living downtown and um, actually met Andy on the street, uh, oh, well, I don't know exactly the date, but it was long before the, the portrait thing. And, of course, you know, we sort of traveled in similar circles and knew, knew some, you know, a lot of the same people. So eventually it, involved, it, it evolved into a situation where I, I did sit for a portrait and... Um, uh, I was just very thrilled and honored to be, you know, a part of any part of, of Andy's world. I, I think uh, he's proven himself to be uh, a great genius of our of our century. And, you know, that, that photo shoot with him, you know, you're, you're starting to go into visual mediums now. Of course, you're doing music, music videos, too, for your own songs, too. But you start jumping to the big screen, too. Um, when... What was it like working with with Cronenberg on Videodrome? I mean, that guy rattled off some of the great. They call it body horror. A lot of his genre. Um, God, The Fly, yeah. The Ringer, so many. But man, that guy—he's a genius. But what was it? Oh, and and John Waters too on Hairspray. But you, memory memories of you know. What, can you compare and contrast the Cronenberg and and Waters? You know, directing styles. You know, like what what was it like working with one versus the other? What were their differences? Well, uh, very different personalities. Uh... I think David uh, is sort of, uh, I guess, I, I mean, for me as an as an actor working under working under either of them was kind of the same because they're both very intense personalities, um, and when you're working on a film, you know, you're under a lot of pressure to commit a certain amount of footage every day and get through a certain amount of pages, and uh, so there's this, uh, you know, this I don't know, undercurrent of, you know, let's do this, you know, let's get it done. Yeah, let's do this. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of technical technical problems that can happen or, or pop up and slow things down. So the, the two of them are both, you know, very, very creative in much, much different ways. Uh, and, you know, the, the situation that or the you know the the media that you're we're working in is so intense, um, but the two of them have something similar actually that they're um, smart, creative, and they're um, they know how to get the best performance out of actors, and they're you know they're considerate you know so I I I was very lucky. To uh, work with either of them, let alone both of them, and uh, <clears throat> I knew I knew John Waters through, uh, you know, his sort of rascally 
um, you know, pink flamingos and a few, 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 few of the other ones. And Cronenberg, on the other hand, through the pictures that you mentioned. And, um, I mean, I don't know. I just uh, feel very, very lucky to have, you know, been able to work with both, either of them, let alone both of them. Awesome. Um, and before we before we run, you've been very generous with your time, but I wanted to real quick touch on the a little a little side interlude chapter that you have, which is so amusing to me. Which was when you got involved with professional wrestling. <laughs> it was the you know yeah. Vince McMahon uh, got he's still alive and kicking, but you know that was a, it was a different time with you know God. You 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 mentioned Bret Hart and Andre the Giant and Rowdy Roddy Piper, Randy Savage, all those guys. But how did they actually contact you? I think it was through Finkel you wrote. But um, you know how how how. Just fascinating was it to dive into that whole world. Well, we had uh, met uh, a manager named Shelley Finkel, and uh, Shelley was involved in the fight game to some degree, and I think it was Shelley who got us to Vince McMahon, and then we started, you know, going to a lot of the a lot of the matches, <clears throat> and uh, I forgot to mention Sergeant Slaughter. And, and the Iron Sheik, I I left out so many names of the wrestlers. Uh, what a what a crazy bunch of guys! And uh, you know, it's just highly entertaining and a whole different world. And you know, Chris and I both, as children, have have watched wrestling on TV. So we had a a long love affair with professional wrestling. <laughs> I love that you included stuff like that. Uh, all right. Well, you've been more than generous with your time. I'm sure you got other interviews to do, but thanks so much. Uh, just in closing, what would you, you know, our, if our listeners come out to the, the book signing and, you know, and then, of course, they pick up your book, what do you want them to leave with? You know, what are some takeaway or two that, you know, they would want to, to know about you? Well, I don't know. I think that uh, it was an interesting period, and I think a lot of the people that come out um, perhaps, you know, went to some of those shows not necessarily only Blondie shows, but, you know, some of the other bands from the time. And um, I think after all these years, you know, CBGBs has become sort of like a trademark to a lot of people. And, I mean, you can even see CB's uh, little cafes in different airports. It's kind of amazing. So, um, I don't know, it's just uh, some kind of affirmation of, you know, the way, way that our culture grows. And it's very interesting. Awesome. Yes, it's more than just about your life and and career. It kind of captures, I guess, sort of the goal is to capture the time and the place, too. And so thanks for for putting it all in in writing for us. So everybody, again, Debbie Harry, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was really fun talking with you. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.